it's critical that we remember why it's written. And so we're going to read John 1, 19 in a minute here. But John is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a very specific purpose. And it's one that he states explicitly for us. At the end of this gospel account, he tells us why he's written what he's written. And it's in John chapter 20, verse 30, 31. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Those are not written in this book. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is writing so that we'll see these things, these things that show us Christ, these signs. And that's the backbone of the book, or these seven or eight signs that, that point to the, to the truth and the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And he wants us to see these things so that we'll believe in Jesus. And that the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, that we'll see Him as the Son of God. And, 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 and that is a key to this whole Gospel of John. Believe, used over a hundred times in this gospel account, he wants us to believe, to put our trust in, to put our, to rest our confidence on Jesus Christ. And he wants us to see him and believe in him so that we can have life in him. Eternal life, abundant life. That's, that's the hope. That's every passage, every verse that we'll see in the gospel of John is working toward that ultimate purpose. And so every, everything, everything John is going to say and everything including what we'll see this morning is to that. And then, and he begins the gospel account right in verse one and he just explodes with, with this, this, this spectacular claim about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on for 18 verses in what we call the prologue of John, which is just kind of the, the front doorstep, but it's not like he just eases us into this and then he's going to get serious and talking about Jesus. No, he just just lets us have it. Just shock and awe, we said. And and we find here, John just gives us this stunning picture of this eternal, divine, creating, uh, true, glorious, gracious word who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19, which is where we pick it up this morning and we've been away for a while, but there's this transition and now he's going to come back to John the Baptist who was mentioned in the in the prologue. And but he's going to go back to John and he's going to move the story forward from there. And that's where we pick it up this morning. So let's read John chapter one, verses 19 to 34. That's where we'll give our attention this morning. John one, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. 
Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen. And have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, it was late September 1949. Um, some of you were, remember this. In the Hollywood area of Los Angeles, California. There was a huge tent that had been erected that could seat uh, over 6,000 people. And there was a, a group of Los Angeles area pastors and church leaders that were planning, had been planning for some time, this three-week evangelistic event in the L.A. area, and they had invited a young preacher to speak at this event, uh, a preacher who many had not heard of at that time, but a man by the name of Billy Graham. And the, the crowds on the first few nights of, of this event were pretty, pretty thin. I mean, there were a lot of people, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't packed out. But as he preached, night after night, the crowds grew and grew and grew. And there were Hollywood celebrities that started coming to to hear um, Billy Graham preach. And many were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, were converted. And because of that, the media started paying attention to this and started covering this. And and people just started streaming in all the more. And so they expanded the tent to hold 3,000 more people. And the three-week event turned into an eight-week event. And, and by the end of this Los Angeles, what became known as a crusade, the whole nation was fascinated by this kind of strange young preacher. It was The images are black and white, but the reports are he wore this pistachio green colored suit, which may not have been that strange at that time, I don't know, um, with this flaming red tie. And and he spoke with that pronounced southern accent. And he he just had this undeniable undeniable appeal to to the masses. Just hanging on his words. It was evident that God was at work. God was doing something there. And, and it spread, and from from Los Angeles, he was invited to speak in other areas, and he went to New England and spoke in Boston, and it was said that it was as if all of New England showed up to hear him preach. And then it that spark just went and spread further, and across America, he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thousands were coming to faith in him. Well, as it was with Billy the Baptist in 1949... In this country, it was with John the Baptist in the 20s of the first century A.D. John was also a young man in his early 30s, just six months older than Jesus. He also dressed kind of strangely, especially to our... But even in his day, it wasn't green suits, it was camel-haired garments. 
And he had a strange diet. He ate locusts and wild honey. And he lived out in the desert away from people. Of a, uh, like a monastic kind of life. He preached this bold, fiery message and was not intimidated by religious leaders of his day and called them to repent. He was baptizing people saying that even the sons of Abraham needed to be cleansed from their sin. And, and at first people came by dozens, then hundreds, then thousands, and for long the whole cities and villages were making their way out into the desert to hear John preach and to be baptized. So you get into Mark 1, 5, a parallel. It says that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him and by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. His, his preaching ministry was just exploding. I mean, he was bringing it. People were coming. And eventually he became so popular and the impact was so great on this region of the world that the religious establishment in Jerusalem really began to take note. And they said, we, we had better go check this guy out. This is not just a flash in the pan here. And so the, the big wigs of Judaism, they sent out this little delegation to, to investigate this eccentric preacher named John. And that's the encounter that unfolds where our text picks up in verse 19. Look at me at verse 19 again. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now John, will see, he's not concerned with all of the eccentricities of the John the writer is not concerned with all the eccentricities of John the Baptist. I know this is going to get a little confusing. We've got two different Johns here. Um, but what the writer wants us to know is about John the Baptist is his testimony. And that's what he says. This is the testimony of John. He, that's, it's what he's communicating both by his life, his ministry, and his message. He wants us to, to hear that. And that's the important part about John. The John the Baptist in the eyes of John the writer under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so his testimony amounts to three basic things. One, John's going to tell us who he's not. Two, he's going to tell us who he is. And then third, he's going to tell us who Jesus is. And that's the simple little track we're going to run on this morning. There are no, there are no handouts. There's no, nothing on the screen. I'm, we're going low tech again here. And then we're going to consider some implications of that at the end. So if you just want to listen, if you want to take notes, however you can Best concentrate so that you can see Jesus in these pages. Then that's what I want. So the first thing that we'll see is John testifies to who he isn't. Now John the writer says that the Jews sent priests and Levites to check on John the Baptist. Now what does that mean? The Jews that like all of the nation get together. They take a vote and said okay I think we need to send a delegation out here. No that's a kind of a. A category, he's saying that, that it was really the Sanhedrin, kind of the religious mission control center and spiritual uh, mission control of, of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment. They sent these guys out, and but they represented the nation as a whole. This was the nation Israel that, that God had sent Jesus as their Messiah to. He sent him to his own people, but we saw in John earlier in John 1, verse 11, that they would not receive their Messiah. But the Jews, they send out this delegation. And, and you need to also understand something about the context here. It, it's easy for us because of our familiarity. We go from Malachi to Matthew with just the turn of a page. And it just seems like this 
Everything just kind of keeps marching through Scripture. But there was this long period of silence in, in redemptive history. 400 years from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. We call that the intertestamental period. But there were, there were these 400 years when, since, there had been 400 years since the word of the Lord came through a prophet of God to his people. Now it doesn't mean that God had been dormant. He wasn't sleeping and slumbering. He, he was never, he's never still. He's never truly silent. God was working. He was moving people around. He was orchestrating all the events that would need to lead in world history to the, to the coming of Messiah. So God was at work. But, but during those 400 years of silence, it, from, from the human perspective, it, it, it seemed like he was absent and distant. Prophecies had stopped. Most of the people in the nation had just kind of given up and gone on with life. And they were, they were still very religious and they were going through the rituals, but they were kind of futile in their, in their ideas. Just going through motions. Some though still waited. They were watching. They were anticipating, longing for the Messiah. And then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, John. Now, to be fair, the angel Gabriel was really the one who broke the silence when he appeared to John's father in, in uh, Zechariah. But, but this is the first prophetic word that's come. This is the first one who's claimed to speak for God. I mean, there were many that claimed and were imposters. But the first one who's speaking with power and authority and conviction, speaking the very word of the Lord. So this is shocking. So the religious elite, they say, we gotta check this guy out. They, they thought he was probably just another false prophet. They thought they would go out there and get this guy to zip his lips and just kind of dismiss him in front of these people. He, he after all, he's not one of them. He's, he's not, he's not in their circle. He doesn't go to seminary. He didn't sit at their feet and learn from them. He wasn't ordained by them. He didn't have their authorization to be out there preaching is uh, claiming to speak for the Lord. He's an outsider. He's a he's a maverick. But he's striking a chord with the common people in Israel out there in the desert, and they're flocking to hear him. And so they see this as kind of a perceived threat to them and to their to the establishment. So they go out and they ask the question again. We pick it up. Who are you? Now, I, I think we are perfectly justified to read that as if they're saying, who do you think you are? I mean, I think that's the tone. This is a sneer. John, and look at John's reply. Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John knew what they were getting after because there had been all of these rumors floating around thinking maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's the one, maybe he's the promised one. And so people were beginning to assume that. So that's why they've been sent to check him out. But you notice how emphatic John is in his answer to them. He says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Now that is, that is a very definition of redundancy. If you students, if you write a paper for school and you turn in a paper that has a sentence like that, the teacher's going to whip out that nice bright red ink pen, circle that, and in all caps, redundant. I don't suggest we do that with John's gospel, but, um, but, but this is, that's what it sounds, but what is he doing? He's making his point very clear. This is emphatic. He says, Nothing could be further from the truth. Without hesitation, he confesses and does not die, deny, but confesses, 
I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. So they press him further at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And why would they ask this? Elijah? He's been gone for years. Well, there's a few reasons. Well, one, you, you can't miss the similarities. We were in Kings not that long ago. Maybe it's been a while, but... Uh, you, you, you know about Elijah and there were similarities in clothing and lifestyle and preaching and, and, and all of this. And so, so there were similarities. But even beyond that, the very last verse of the Old Testament speaks about an Elijah who, and who is going, going to come. That the word of the Lord, the last time the word of the Lord came through the prophet Malachi, Last verses of the Old Testament says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So that's how it ended and here we're picking it back up. Are you Elijah? Is that who you're claiming to be? I didn't think he really was, but this is not who he's claiming to be. And after all, Elijah didn't die, Remember? He, he, one of two people that we know of in scripture, he and Enoch that did not die but went straight to heaven and God took him to heaven in a whirlwind, you remember? So maybe God just kind of reversed the whirlwind and just ploop, sent him back to earth. Is that what you're saying, John? Are you, are you Elijah? But John answers, I am not. I'm not the physical, literal Elijah. He's a different guy. God didn't whirlwind him back to earth. That's not it. Now, for us, we have the whole New Testament. This can be a little bit confusing for us because in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel account, Jesus actually says, yes, John the Baptist is Elijah. So we think, wait, wait a second. Is he not? Is he? Jesus says he is. And generally, what Jesus says is kind of the authority, authoritative answer on everything. That's a pretty good way to live. I'm understating that. What, did, what does Jesus mean? And the answer is, we, we see in, in the parallel in Luke's gospel account, the opening chapter, this is where Luke uh, records the that word that the angel Gabriel brought to Zechariah, John's father. And this old barren couple, they're told by the angel that they're going to have a son and they're to name him John. And the angel says of John, he will go forth, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so John's ministry was like Elijah's. He was a forerunner to the Messiah. He did prepare the way for the Lord. But he's not literally the same Elijah that's now reincarnate. That's not it. And so they, they press him a little further. So he says, I'm not, not Elijah. Then are you the prophet? This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 to 18. This is where Moses, from the word of the Lord, said that there would be this great prophet who would be raised by the Lord and the people would hear him. So they're saying, are you you the prophet? Is that who you're claiming to be? John simply says, no. You you notice the the increasing bluntness of his answers there. (laughs) Who are you? I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. <laughs> and he just wants to make it very clear. And this is what we're saying. Who he's not so that all eyes will be put upon Jesus. That's where, that's the whole purpose of John's ministry. I'm not the light. I came to bear witness to the light. That's what we saw in John, earlier in John 1. 
Now, and you think, though, of how tempting it would be for, for John to let his ego get a little bit stoked, stroked by these guys as they're asking these questions. These people are flocking. John, are you the Christ? Well, no, no, I'm not the Christ. But you do have to wonder why all these people are coming out here to hear me. I mean, I've got like 26,000 followers on Twitter and almost 50,000 Facebook friends. And and it's true, my preaching is very profound. And it seems to really be making a difference out here. And I don't know, maybe maybe I am the Christ. But maybe, maybe I am, but the God just hasn't revealed it to me yet. Well, well, if I'm not the Christ, then it's pretty clear that there's a good chance I'm Elijah. Um, and if not Elijah, then certainly I'm the prophet. But that's not it. What does he say? He says, John avoids all of that temptation, confesses, he does not deny, but confesses, no, no. That's not who I am. That's not who I will ever be. Get, get, just get that thought out of your heads. And we, we see his humility here. We, and, and he goes on to tell us one other thing he's not. He looked down at verse 27. It, he says, he who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. You want to know what else I'm not? I'm not, I'm not worthy to get down on my knees and, and unstrap that dirty sandal and wash his stinky foot. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. This, this is, and, and what makes that shocking to us is because we know what Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. He says, among those born of women, which is every person that's ever been born. You learn fascinating things here at church, I know. Um, he says, among those born of women, there's never been one as great as John the Baptist. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Elijah is John. He says, even he says, I'm not. I'm not worthy to touch his feet. One of the reasons I think Jesus called John the Baptist so great was because he understood and considered himself not to be great. And that's, is that true for us? Is that how we think of ourselves? So the first thing that we see is John, as John is, is pointing us to Jesus and he says, he's giving testimony of Christ. He says, he says who he's not. And so we need to, we need to move forward. The, the delegation then kind of regroups and they ask. And so verse 22, he says, what are, who are you then? We need, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Give us a break, John. We got to tell them something. So tell us who you are. And so he then gives them an answer and he does so by two things, by quoting scripture and by showing his relation to Jesus. That's what he's doing in his answers in verse 23. And that's a pretty good practice. When others, people want to ask us who we are, what, what's important about us. Well, we're going to quote scripture and we're going to show that the most important thing about me is how I'm related to Jesus. This is what John is doing, who John is. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John says, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what I'm doing out here, you read the prophet Isaiah. That's where you'll find your answer. I'm a highway builder. I'm sent to build a, a highway in the desert for God. Not to, not so that man can make his way to God, but so that God can come to man. 
That's what Isaiah's prophecy is about. Isaiah chapter 40. And, 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 and Isaiah tells how the highway will be built in verse 4 of Isaiah 40. It's just, just like we build modern, modern roads. If you have, if you're cutting a new road through terrain, you fill in the low spots, you, you take out the hills and level those. You, any crooked, curvy places, you make those straight. If there's rough patches, you make them smooth. That's what Isaiah 40 is talking about. And, and this is what John's ministry has been all about. Any low spots out there, those who are who are low and who are sorrowful over their sin and truly repentant, they're brought up and they're exalted. And those who are and the high spots, the proud, the self-sufficient ones, those are brought low through John's ministry. And the crooked, the crooked ways of people, they're brought straight through repentance. That's all that preparing the way of the Lord. That's his ministry. And so this is who he says, this is who I am. And he goes on, verse 25, they asked him further, then why are you baptizing if you are neat? It's like they don't even hear him. <laughs> Let's go back to who you are. Really, who are you? If you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? Now, we, we get baptism. We have a baptistry and we, we've seen people baptized, but baptism was not was not something that was really practiced in Israel. There were purification rites and cleansing ceremonies that were done by the priests and 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 those for those who were ceremonially ceremonially unclean and defiled. And so they knew about that. But the, but this kind of baptism was new in Israel. No prophet before had ever baptized like John was baptizing. So they're scratching their heads. And one of the things that kind of bothers them is if they are if they are thinking connection to these cleansing rites is what business do you have doing this you're the son of a priest you should know better than this you have no business out here claiming to cleanse people that's our job but but he's saying so so who do you think you are baptizing why do you do this and verse 26 john answered them i baptize with water But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John answers them, but he doesn't really answer them. (laughs) He doesn't really say why he's baptizing. He just says, he doesn't, instead what he does is he emphasizes again this contrast between he and Jesus, this massive gap in superiority. He's saying, I, and that's emphatic, I myself baptized with water. I'm just dealing with external stuff. That's all I, that's all I do. I just, it's just externals. That's my ministry. But oh, there's one standing among you. He just, he just, he doesn't answer the question. He just points him to Christ. Points him to, he sets it up for the Lamb who's coming. Now, was Jesus, was Jesus literally standing in the crowd that day? It's very possible that he was already there. We'll see, it's the next day that, that he's pointed out and he makes his appearance. Maybe he was there and was mingling and nobody knew it. Or maybe he was in the vicinity and John knew that. He knew he was a part of their generation, but, but, but this, this is taking place some six weeks after, after Jesus' baptism by John. And after he was baptized, you remember he was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. So that is now completed. He's victorious out there. And he comes back from the desert to the place where John is baptizing and preaching again. 
And John's saying, this is, this is the point. He's greater. He's greater. He's far greater. And I don't doubt that as John uttered those words, there were just chills that went up his spine as he communicated that. He's greater. Because John knew the prophecies. He didn't just study the prophecies about himself. He knew the prophecies of the Messiah. He knew that the Messiah would come and be born as a baby to a virgin. That, that he would grow up and the government would rest upon his shoulders. And he would be given the name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He knew this about Jesus. He knew that he'd come and fulfill Isaiah 53 and take the sins of the world upon himself and, and bear them in, in, in our place. He knew all of those things. And he says, he's among you. He's standing here. And so, we see from the very beginning of Scripture, way back in the garden, there's this whisper of hope that grows stronger and stronger from Genesis to Malachi, that, that, that someone is coming. In the garden, it's, there, would be, there would be one who would come and it would crush the serpent's head. And, and you go, you go on from there and the hope just grows and grows as more and more promises are given about this one who would come. Yet by the end of the Old Testament, no one's come. You have this, this whole book, most of the Bible that at, at this time it seemed to be unfulfilled prophecies. God, had God forgotten? Had he, had he, had he not kept his word? Yet John is announcing there's one standing among you who is the fulfillment of all of that prophetic expectation. And so we read verse 29, read it in that, with that sense, be gripped by that feeling. And so we read one of the greatest statements in all scripture in verse 29. I mean, this is right up there with, it is finished. And with he is not here for he is risen. Look verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, in one sentence you have the very essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. One sentence. He's, so John's testimony is, is who, I, who he isn't. Who he is, and now he's going to tell us who Jesus is. And he's going to point, point him out. And let's just break these words down together in just a minute, and then I'll give some concluding implications. First he says, behold. Behold. Now I, I got it wrong in the sermon title, so that's a subtle difference, and it's not a major thing, but, but behold the Lamb of God. It, this, this is not, the Lamb is not the direct object of behold in this sentence. That's not the construction here. This is really an interjection. So it's, behold, look, open your eyes, see this. Uh, get, 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 catch what's going on here. And then he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he's saying, don't miss what's right in front of you. Don't miss what God is doing in our midst. This is what he's saying. Just look. Exclamation point. That's how you could better write it. I think most translations put a comma. But even better. Look. Exclamation point. The Lamb of God. This Lamb of God. Now what that boy. That brings into all kinds of thoughts in our minds. Doesn't it? But even more so for John's first readers. And, and, and John the Baptist hearers here. For centuries. 
Israel's collective consciousness has been programmed with this language of the the Lamb of God and this idea of the sacrificial Lamb. It goes back to Abraham and Isaac when 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 Isaac says, "Behold, the fire and wood, but where is the Lamb for a burnt offering?" What does Abraham say? He says, "God will provide Himself a Lamb for a burnt offering, my son." And it goes back to the Passover lamb when, when they spread the blood of the lamb on the, over the door to, so that the, 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 the pass by and the wrath of God would pass by and they could be spared. It goes back just to the daily sacrificial lambs that were, the blood was spilled every day in the tabernacle and temple. It goes back to Isaiah 53 verses 6 and 7, some of those beautiful words in scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And yet John says of Jesus, behold, the lamb of God. The Lamb is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Lamb is sinless. It's a spotless Lamb. Because He's divine. The Lamb is to be slaughtered. It's a sacrifice. There will be blood spilt. All of these are connotations of this expression, the Lamb of God. You know, we, we, I know it's, it's kind of unpopular in our day to talk about blood atonement of Jesus Christ we we can't we can't get over that church um, not not in our thinking not in our praying not in our worship not in our preaching not in our not in anything Christianity is a it's a bloody religion it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin first John 3 7 there's a fountain we sang this words from William Cooper there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And he who's plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. And that's what John says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away. That's a present participle. It just means that it could be translated. The Lamb who is taking away the sin of the world. But what Jesus is doing, he's carrying out that work of atonement for sin by, by living this perfect life, by being tempted as we are, yet without sin, and yet he's going to die, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to rise, he's going to return. All of that, he's taking away the sin of the world. Now, it's not communicating some idea of universal atonement that, that that God in Christ has just kind of forgiven every sin in the world. And so so it doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or not. It's all been done in Christ. That's not it. He's saying that Jesus has provided atonement through his death for sin. For those from every tribe, every tongue, every people around the world. All those of the world, around the world that are lost in sin. All have access to salvation through Jesus Christ. Because he was the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. And that was a radical statement for these Jews, for their ears to hear. Because they were Israel, they were God's chosen nation, they were the ones to receive the benefits of God's salvation. Yes, there would be some light that would kind of be sprinkled on the nations, but they were the ones at the center of everything. And here we see it's not limited to Israel, it's not limited to genealogy, to bloodline. It's only limited to the expanse of God's mercy. He it says it's for the whole world. I mean, the most quoted 
well-known verse in Scripture, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So John the Baptist is saying, look, open your eyes to what God is doing. This is the God-man, the sinless Lamb of God who will be slaughtered to atone for sin. And not just for the sin of one group of people, but for the whole world. It's open to all. And that all includes you this morning. You're there. You're in it. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain to take away the sin of the world? Have you accepted the bloody sacrifice of Jesus in your place to atone for your sin? That's the only way your sins can be removed, taken away, forgiven. And and, and if you haven't done that, the statement of John the Baptist just kind of rings hollow. Because your sin remains unless you've trusted in Jesus. And, And do you notice... Don't miss the urgency in this in this account. You you see it here. No, I am not the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God. Look, there he is. He's he's right there. He's coming. You you don't have to imagine anymore. You don't have to lay on your bed at night tossing and turning, wondering if your sins can be forgiven, if you can be right with God. He's here. Behold him. Don't miss him. In verse 30, he goes on, this is he, this is the one of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is the one I was talking to you about yesterday. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let me just summarize, there's a lot there, but let me just summarize what he's saying and why it's so important. The gist of what he's saying with each of these expressions in verses 31 to 34, he's saying, I didn't make this up. This is not, this is not coming from John. This is coming from God. The only reason I know about Jesus is because God revealed him to me. Everything came from heaven. God opened my eyes to see the truth about Jesus and who he is. He's the Christ. He's the son of God. And so here's the deal for us then. There is a lot at stake here. You need to decide whether you're going to listen to and believe the testimony of John concerning Jesus this morning. You've heard it. John says, my testimony came from God. God told me what to say about Jesus. And so you don't have to believe John, of course. Um, But if you're wrong, listen, there There will be eternal consequences. You'll miss the way of truth and life. And there's a lot at stake. And I believe God, again, I believe he has you here for a reason this morning. To hear this testimony. What are you going to do with this testimony about Jesus today? Are you going to just kind of discard it, deny it, ignore it, go on? Or will you believe 
Well, you rest the whole weight of your confidence and on what the Lamb of God did to take away your sin. I beg you to do that today. Now, if you're here and you're saying, if you have questions, we'd love to talk to you. You just say that. I, whether, whether you believe John's testimony about Jesus or not, whether you think this is totally bogus, either way, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. And I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to try to coerce you or manipulate you to do anything that you don't want to do. I'm not, we're not going to embarrass you or single you out or pressure you in any way this morning. I, all I want to urge you to do is to simply examine this. I encourage you to read on through the rest of John. Read through the Gospel of John. And then if you've got questions, we ask us. We'd love to talk. And next week, come and Tell, tell, share what questions you have and we can, can talk about it with you. So we've got these little books. They're just, it's just the Gospel of John. This is just taken right out of Scripture, but just put in a small form so you can carry it in your pocket, break it open at your work break at lunch. And these are, there's tons of these available. I know there's a bunch by the, in the hallway downstairs and you can grab, grab one if you would like and, and read through it, examine it. So that's my encouragement to you. Well, let me conclude with just some of these implications then that are for all of us this morning. If you really stop, if you really behold, if you really look, if you really see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's going to change things for you and me. It's got to. What are some things that's going to change? Well, one of the things is that we're going to see Christianity isn't about religion and rituals. It's about a relationship with this Lamb. That's that's it. I mean, you think of in all of Israel's history and all of the lambs, all of the blood of bulls and goats. And Scripture says that's not that doesn't atone for sin. What, what you need to do is you need to have this relationship. You need to be identified with this this person, Jesus Christ, this Lamb of God. So that's the first thing. It's about a relationship with this Lamb. Second implication is that we'll see that God cares deeply about our greatest problem, which is sin. And he did something about it. That every problem in our lives, every sorrow, every grief, every hardship, every struggle, everything has its roots in sin. Everything wrong in this world, it goes back to sin. And, and that is our greatest need for sin to be dealt with. And that is what God has done. We, we can live with hope in this broken and fallen and messed up world where we sin and where we're sinned against in very grievous ways. And we, we see the fallout of sin in our families and in our church and in our community and in our world. And we see all of that and it's just awful. And yet we can live with hope here because God has dealt with the bloody and the, the, the deadly root through his death. The Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. He's dealt with it. Now I realize sin still exists, but one day he's coming back and, and one day we'll die and we'll, we'll, we'll face that last great enemy death, but, but he will, we will be removed for eternity if we're in Jesus Christ from the very presence of sin. Third implication is that we'll, if we really see the Lamb of God as, as He's shown here, that we'll see our sin for what it really is, and that is truly heinous. That it's worse than we ever imagined. That, that sin, sin, be, couldn't, sin could, not, could not be forgiven by a divine, ah, forget about it. That wasn't enough. 
No, blood had to be spilled. And not just any blood. Blood of the only Son of God. So you start to think, this is serious. My sin, my that, that little lie I told, that little dishonest comment, that little word of gossip, that little gaze, that lustful look, that, that anger, that pride, that unbelief, that jealousy, that envy, that greed, that love of money, that discontent. That ingratitude, that impatience, that lack of self-control, it's bad. That's what it took to deal with it. Our sins are not benign like we want to make them and like the culture wants to make us think. They're deadly and they cost God's only son his life. Getting this will help us deal with sin more radically in our own lives. It will fuel our sanctification. Another implication is that we'll see that the aim of our lives is pointing others to Jesus. Because it's not about us. I mean, just as it was for John, John got this. It's all about the Lamb who takes away sin. It's not about me. I didn't bring myself to God. I didn't make myself right with God. I haven't figured out the secret key to life with God and to, to eternity with Him and to being right with Him. No, that's not it at all. It's all about Christ. And so if we get that, the whole aim of our life then is going to be to point others to Jesus. Everything we do, pointing our kids, pointing our spouses, pointing our friends, pointing our neighbors, pointing our co-workers, pointing one another. We're going to say, it's all, it's Jesus. Look to him. Look to him. It's not me. It's Jesus. Another implication is that we'll see the world differently. We'll see the world differently. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you get that, that's going to change how you read the paper in the morning. It's going to, if you still read a paper in the morning, it's going to change how you surf the web and read news and watch the news. And it's going to change how you look at maps. And it's going to change how you think about uh, your neighbors and interact with them. It's, it's, going to, it's going to change everything because we see that the scope of God's, God's mission and, 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 and the expanse of his mercy encompasses the whole world. That we should live then our lives as defined by the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And we're coming off our World Missions Conference. I just want to bring bring that back fresh to us. Well, how are we going to respond to that? Well, this text should, again, just invigorate us for this work of getting the gospel out to the nations. And it should cause us to give generously as we fill those little grace promise cards out and, and to pray more fervently for our missionaries as, and support them and encourage them and, and cheer them on and maybe some of us need to go and 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 and, and whether short term or long term, what however, whatever it means, but making disciples here, but we're gonna we're gonna be think differently about the world because if we really own this and get this. And then the last thing is if we really see this about Lord, we see what God is doing in the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We will never run out of fuel for expressive worship of the Lord. And uh, worship of all kinds. I don't just mean singing, but, but I do mean singing also. And I want to close and I want you to turn to, you can turn or just, or you can just listen. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5 and then we'll, we'll, we will sing and we will respond in singing to the Lamb of God. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll 
written within and on the back, seal with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you gave this revelation to John. The same John who recorded the gospel account of John years before. Those words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And then we see the end, the culmination, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Slain, blood poured out, body broken to take away our sin. God, help us even now to, to, to let our singing, let our praying over the next hour, let our listening in Sunday school, let our conversations in the fellowship hall, let everything we do in our worship of you this morning, God, be, be fueled and, and just inflamed by this reality. Of the Lamb of God coming to take away the sin of the world. We pray in His name. Amen.